Welcome back to Check Displeased. It's a podcast where we're reading through Check Please, strip by strip, talking about what's going on in the strip and what relationship does it have to the rest of Check Please. Today we're going to be looking at episode 1.8, Checking Clinic, which was originally posted on August 28th, 2013. There's an associated blog post, which you can check out. We'll link to it. Uh, I'm secret and I'm excited because this is the comic where Zimbits becomes real. I'm Tomato and I'm also extremely excited about this. Am I as excited as I was about the Hockey Prince? No. No, there's, there's, there's nothing like the Hockey Prince, except for some comics that happen later. But we'll talk about those later. Today we're here to talk about checking clinic. We start in Biddy's dorm room, and he is saying that he is on Reason 17 to hate Jack. Jack woke him up on a Sunday morning at 4 in the morning to go skating because Jack Zimmerman works harder than God. And then you go to the, the rink, Faber, at four in the morning, and Biddy's saying, it's so early that I'm going to vomit. And Jack is like, oh, you've never gotten up early? And Biddy says that he has to do Soviet calisthenics with his Russian figure skating coach. Jack says, just stand against the boards and brace yourself. And Biddy says, sure. There's a jump to a panel where Biddy's face looks shocked and he says, oh dear God, with no punctuation. And then Jack is uh, basically crushing him against the boards and he's saying, come on, square up, push off and skate through. And Biddy is just yelling, stop, stop, stop. And then he collapses onto the ice against the boards and he's kind of crying and he says, what in the deep fried hell was that? And Jack says, I came at you slow and I didn't even have pads on. He then gives a little speech about how Biddy is a talented hockey player, but he's got what he calls a, quote, stupid mental block about the checking thing. And he's gonna get Biddy over the checking thing. And he says, just trust me, okay? Biddy says, how long are we going to keep doing this? And then Jack, very dramatically, like he knows he's in a story, says, until you stop being scared. But then in the final panel, he says, but actually there's a youth hockey tournament today, so we have to get out of here by seven. And Gozi, at one time, a time that was before I was in the Check Please fandom, had a Discus account, and my guess is that it was either embedded in her Tumblr or embedded in the WordPress where she also used to post Check Please. It was embedded in the Check Please Tumblr, if I remember correctly. Cool. Well, somebody basically asked in regard to number 17, reason why to hate Jack, what were the first 16 reasons? And so in a Discus reply, Ngozi wrote the following 16 reasons to hate Jack, according to Biddy. He doesn't know who Beyonce is. He's kind of mean. His butt is too big. His face is too good. Wolf eyes. His eyes are too wolf eyes. Mutiny. Doesn't know who Beyonce is. His last name has two N's and that's hard to remember. Pie is not his favorite food. Canadian. Funny accent. Muscles too much. 
Okay, accent is actually kind of attractive. Doesn't know who Beyonce is. Stupid, sexy Zimmerman. So those are the 16 reasons to hate Jack. And then number 17 is that he got Biddy up on a Sunday at four in the morning to go do checking practice at Faber. This, I think, is a really good example of how playful this felt early on. This kind of really casual interaction is not in keeping with Ngozi's kind of fan interactions in the past couple of years, in my experience. But this is what it, I remember it being like. I mean, this was before I was writing fanfic, right? But I was starting to like get into the comic around this time. And it, it was totally like this, just all sorts of like fun, collaborative storytelling. I mean, this reminds me of the way that I talk with you when we're messaging and I'm like, and then this happens and then this happens. And then you ask me a question and then I answer it or I ask you a question and you answer it. I mean, it feels very collaborative in that way. I also understand why she like shut down Discus and didn't want to engage on this level anymore. I think part of it is probably like readership just got too big and having this direct interaction was not possible to sustain. Also, you have to moderate something like a Discus. So if you've got thousands of readers, suddenly it goes from being something that's kind of easy to moderate to something that's hard. To her credit, she did not delete all of these answers. They're all still on her Discus account. And if you go Google and Gozi you and Discus, you'll find her account and you can read all of her answers. Most of them are not like real in-depth and insightful. They're just kind of playful like this. A lot of them are sort of teasing Zimbits or whatever. So it's not like a real source of like substance about the comic necessarily, but they're fun. And it's one of those things that like, when I was getting into the comic, things where I was like, oh, there's more. And I just like wanted everything. It was fun to find this. Having said that, like, I don't know. I mean, obviously this is just like a throw-off comment that's like a 16-item list, but like doesn't know who Beyonce is is on it three times. Like, uh, okay. Stupid Sexy Zimmerman is a Simpsons reference. And your point about Jack's stupid face in the Assist comic that we talked about last time, look up Stupid Sexy Flanders on YouTube. It's from a season 11 episode of The Simpsons. So like when The Simpsons wasn't very good anymore, that this sort of mimetic moment of uh, Ned Flanders in like an aerodynamic skin tight ski suit. He's like having a conversation with Homer and then Homer does like something wacky on the ski slope and Homer I guess blames stupid sexy Flanders for being distracting. Honestly in context it's like really not homoerotic. Yeah sure. Like Homer isn't like, ugh, oh, I'm hot for Ned Flanders. He's like, ugh. Like, he's actually, he's actually kind of like, ugh, God. Like, if I weren't so turned off by slander. Anyway, point being, um, what does wolf eyes mean? Serious question. What does that mean? I took it to mean sort of like the fact that he has pupils, the fact that he's got like semi-creepy, semi-mysterious, maybe like slightly glowing mystical eyes. No, I mean, really, I took it to mean that he just has like sort of piercing romance hero eyes. I also want to make the point that in the blog post for this strip, Ngozi actually says 250 followers. Wow. Like that's how she opens the blog post. So that kind of gives you an idea of where this was in the comics popularity when she was making these like fun discus comments. Yeah, also on that blog post, she makes a comment about shipping and she says, it has been brought to my attention that shipping has begun on multiple fronts. Carry on. I think that's 
like a really funny and interesting part of what I remember about this era. The part of fandom that led up to the first Huddle. And I remember reading, so so just for context, Huddle is this kind of like zine, which engages in multi-shipping. And actually when I first read the Huddle, I was like very surprised by this because I wasn't used to a creator who like, engaged in such a playful way with her characters in ways that were not true to the text. And I I thought it was like really fun and interesting. And so I'm kind of intrigued by this attitude carry on when this attitude has definitely changed. And now I would say Ngozi is much more careful and interested in controlling how people interact with her characters. So it's just a really interesting comment I was very surprised to see. I think at the beginning of the comic, there were uh, five characters. I'm presuming nobody was shipping the coaches, but that's basically (laughs) who's in this comic up to this point. And there aren't that many options. Shipping is something that can help build your brand for something like Check Please. I think the relationship of shippers or the fandom to like mainstream media is often sort of overestimated or overstated by people who have a stake in fandom. Like, I don't really believe that the creators of many like highly commercial corporate properties actually give too much of a shit about like what people in the fandom are doing but this is an outfit that at 250 followers is basically drawing an audience like from within the fandom communities on tumblr and gozi before this was a fan artist she drew star trek i'm sure she drew other things but star trek is the one thing that i'd like seen her art of predating check please You know, I think she does have this community and she's probably keenly aware that she's going to draw a lot of readership from the sort of slash fandom community and people who want to get involved with shipping. I too find this kind of interesting, not because I don't understand the change from feeling like you're in control of your own media property to feeling like it's out of your control and it's no longer really yours because it belongs to the whole world. But yeah, she has expressed feelings that I was uncomfortable with over the past year, year and a half Because she seems like she doesn't like the way that people are shipping things or she doesn't like that people are overly invested in certain characters. Yeah, I mean, I think probably at this point it's like the first time anybody's ever shipped something that like she came up with. And it's probably really fun and really flattering. And there's something about collaborating and collaborative storytelling here, which I think is really fun and interesting and was part of the joy of Checklist. We've mentioned this before with the with the Twitter and this kind of like back and forth between character, author, and audience, which then changes as we go from this thing that we've talked about before or that you actually mentioned first, which is this trajectory from webcomic to graphic novel. And I think there's also maybe a changing relationship to fandom as well. Why do fandoms develop? For me, the reason fandoms tend to develop, this is my impression, is because there's some kind of interesting character gap in the original text, which is worth exploring. When the text is finished, like a movie, 
that gap can be because of poor writing. It can be because of poor planning. It can be just because a movie can only cover so much, but it's a finished text. There's like a different relationship with that text than something like this, which is ongoing at this time. There's plenty of gaps right now because we're only like eight strips in. There's lots left to cover. And I, I wonder as the text started to become more and more complete and the fandom started exploring not so much what was left to be told, but what hadn't been told, I wonder also if that in addition to just it becoming much more popular, there being a much bigger fan base, it becoming her livelihood. Like there's all sorts of other considerations too. But I wonder if it became, if that sort of like speculative nature of what's coming in this comic, switching over into almost like a arguably potentially meta quality of like what didn't happen in this comic. I wonder if that tone shift might have felt uncomfortable for her as a creator. I don't know. I mean, this is the thing that I like don't want to speculate too much on because I can't know how she felt. But but I'm interested kind of in that idea of like how fandoms develop. I mean, how fandoms develop is a very wide ranging topic that probably could use a lot more than just this episode to get into it. What I will say about Shark Please at this point is that it doesn't have a lot of like fic for it for a while. Like nobody's writing Shark Please fic yet. And I don't think the fandom starts to really explode until 2014, when the comic's been posting going on about a year. I feel like possibly when you're at the beginning of a work like this, there isn't really enough to have a fandom about. I think I'm thinking about shipping even casually as like a practice of fandom, even if it's not a full fandom. I don't understand what shipping something casually is. Like, I've never... That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't care if two characters in a story are together unless, like, I want to read fic about them. I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat, but but some people are some people have fun in other ways that I don't understand, and that's fine for them. Jack Zimmerman works harder than God. Let's talk about that. Okay, Jack Zimmerman works harder than God. Jack Zimmerman is such a creepy ass. I appreciate that Biddy hates him. And I kind of don't like that even this early on, word of God is implying it's not just like pure contempt, it's mingled with sexual attraction. Jack is such a fucking asshole. I do not like him. I mean, I love him. He's my husband on the astral plane. <laughs> but I fucking hate him. Just like, what an asshole. Like, shut the fuck up, Jack. Jack wife. There's a Jack Wife flight contingent out there somewhere. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry. God. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let's uh, let's move away from this. Uh, I mean, that was obviously what I was referring to, but, like, come on. Jack Zimmerman works harder than God. I think Jack is just such a dickhole. This whole comic, up until this point, okay, good job. Good job, Jack Zimmerman. You work harder than God. What's that fucking worth? Have we seen him work harder than God? We haven't. We've just seen him kind of be an asshole to Biddy. Like, we've seen him on the ice, but there hasn't been very much actual ice time. We've seen him, like, grimly down his 80 eggs and, like, yell at Biddy and yell at the coaches about Biddy, but we haven't actually seen him do hard work. You know, we can take Biddy's assessment of the situation fairly well, fine. But I just think it's, like, interesting how his characterization is being set up 
I talked a little bit last time, I think about summary and kind of like ways of telling stories. I think this is like an example of that, right? This is an example of Biddy kind of like telling us something that we then accept, but we haven't necessarily been shown very much about him. I mean, and I think it's interesting, as you said, that already we're getting this uh, word of God, sexual tension introduction when on the page, we haven't seen Jack do much besides be an asshole. And that sets him up in like this kind of weird archetypal space. In this particular strip, he is getting up at four in the morning. And actually, he doesn't live in Biddy's dorm. So he's probably getting up at something like three in the morning to go to Biddy's dorm to wake him up, to get him to the ice. Jack doesn't need to do this. And he probably, if he just did nothing and didn't help Biddy, Biddy would just get cut. And the hockey team would probably also just be fine. It's never demonstrated in check plays years one and two that like the Samwell men's hockey team needs Biddy. Biddy needs them. So if Jack just did nothing and Biddy got cut, again, I guess we wouldn't have a story, but Jack wouldn't have a problem. He doesn't need to get up in four in the morning to like do this for Biddy. It's a demonstration that he's going above and beyond in a completely insane way that which is his responsibility as like even the captain of the team. So I guess that's working harder than God. That said, as with a lot of things in life that have to do with like Protestant work ethic, like what is the value of this fucking work? Like what's on the line here that you're like making yourself and somebody else miserable for? That's the $60,000 question. I mean, when I first read this, I was like, it's a fun comic about hockey and maybe people will kiss. I don't really believe that they'll kiss, but the author keeps hinting, so it might happen. And then I did, right? I didn't question this this much. On rereading it, I'm actually like kind of confused by Jack's motivations. I mean, Jack's a bit of a cipher, which is one of the things, I mean, I think to Biddy, he's a bit of a cipher, which I am interested in, and I'm interested in that dynamic. But I think that this is maybe the first time that we're seeing them have a conversation which isn't yelling, but kind of is yelling. It's like a it's like a weird dynamic that's getting set up here. It just feels weird to have the protagonist of your comic having these things done to him, basically being told, you're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. And the protagonist is just like, okay, gee whiz, or like whatever. A completely different story might have had, say, Biddy coming to the conclusion that he needs Jack's help and asking Jack for help. But Biddy is just like a rootless little nothing. And so he just gets buffeted about on the wind like a husk of something that fell from a tree. But the thing about Biddy, his story is framed all about making choices. Um, And that starts fairly early, his choice to come to Samwell instead of stay in Georgia, right? That's like a choice. So I'm curious what work this does for characterization or like what it shows us about him. Because you're right, it's kind of a weird choice to be like this scary hot guy on my team like made me get up at four and then hit me as opposed to I'm going to get better, which is a more typical sports narrative, the latter. I'm going to get better. I'm going to get him to help me. I'm going to get him on my side. I'm going to get good at hockey, right? That would be sort of like the sports narrative. I think an interesting AU fanfic would be Biddy just says no. Jack shows up at his dorm in the morning and Biddy is just like, fuck no. I would 
read that because I think Jack would be shocked and kind of into the fact that someone just told him no. And I want to see what would develop from there. Oh, I think he instantly would go back to the house and just furiously jerk off. Probably. That seems right. That feels good. All right. Uh, Something interesting about Biddy in this panel is that he's got something like on his shirt or something that I think is on his shirt. And every single time I see the strip, I think to myself, what is on the front of his shirt? Is that like a Georgia peach? And then I realize, oh, it's his fucking rabbit. He's recording this video with his fucking stuffed rabbit, like, in his lap. Not only is he holding, like, a plush bunny as an 18-year-old, like, at college on his vlog, which I, listen, we all got to do what we got to do. That's fine, I guess. He is so fucking cherubic in this first strip. He's got these huge eyes, these round cheeks, this like disheveled hair in a sort of like playful boyish way. Like it's very like British schoolboy, like on a, on a hill with the wind blowing in his hair while he like has a short pants and high socks. I don't know what's happening here, but that's what his hair makes me think of. And it's really a weird character design choice for me. He looks so young. He does not look 18. He looks like 12. He is apple-cheeked. He is like fucking blushing. And he looks tired in the way that, uh, I don't know if you've ever spent time with like a toddler who's just totally exhausted themselves. Nope. Well, it's frustrating. They get sad. But like right before they start bawling, there's this, there's this like big-eyed sort of like frustrated period in my experience of hanging out with toddlers, which is not that extensive. And this is what Biddy reminds me of. He looks just like a forlorn child. I know that I said 12, but maybe four. Like he looks really young. He just looks like a baby, sort of like exhausted and round-cheeked. And I just feel so weird about it, especially if we look at sort of the way that their body language and that framing changes throughout the rest of the panels. I just feel really weird about that as a way to set off this, the shipping. Well, maybe now is a good time to just sort of casually throw in, just kind of casually pepper in that the setting for this comic is like also where like, you'll get married three years from now. Listen, sometimes people get married at like 20 and that's great. Biddy is 18 and Jack is 23. That's also fine, but there's like a very interesting thing happening there. Even if you think about like the way that young men's bodies change from like late teens to early 20s, a lot of growing happens. There's like something weird happening there. Biddy's rabbit. I don't know. I don't hate it, but like, I'm not into stuffed animals really. And I don't know. It's fine. Sorry. I I hate Biddy's rabbit. I fucking hate it. It creeps me out. It's one of these things. It's one of like a lot of things people say about Jack, please. They're like, oh, I hate that. And it's like what they call bitch eating crackers level dislike. Most of the things people have bitch eating crackers level dislike for in check, please, I just don't care about. I'm not bothered by. I hate Biddy's motherfucking rabbit. Get that thing out of my face. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Uh, this concludes the podcast. See you next time when we talk about uh, hockey shit um, nicknames. Bye. <laughs> Wait, no, come back. I want to talk about Jack Zimmerman's ass. It's finally here. Okay, well, wait. What in the deep fried hell was that?
Um, nobody talks like that. Nobody would fucking say that. I'm sorry. This is like something that somebody who was trying to write fun dialogue for a Southern character would write. Nobody would say these things in real life. I just, I don't know. Something about it stuck out to me. He would just be like, what the fuck? He wouldn't say, what in the deep fried hell was that? Like, he would say like, what the fuck? Like... Have you never been around people? There is like, I think a point we'll maybe circle around to at the end of this when we talk about sort of like humor and like what is entertaining. But I just wanted to point out that like, I said a couple times on this podcast that I think her writing, like the quality of her writing, like the words she uses are, is not good and she's not good at writing. Like, this is the kind of thing that, like, takes me out of it, and it just feels, like, so constructed. It's not that I'm always looking for verisimilitude, but it's just, like, way too writerly. It's like the hand of the writer is too in the dialogue. It reminds me of, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer style. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that, because when people criticize this kind of writing, they often bring up Joss Whedon, somebody who I have never seen anything he has produced except for the Avengers, which I saw because I was living alone in a non-English speaking country and people on Tumblr were like, oh my God, this is the greatest movie ever. And I was like, well, I got nothing else to do. I'm stuck in a country where I don't speak the language. So I went to go see it and I was just like, what? That's because it's an incoherent and terrible movie, but that's a podcast for another day. I have seen quite a few Joss Whedon properties. I watched all of the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer on DVDs I got out from my public library. So there you go. Uh, And I watched Firefly and whatever. I I have my relationship with his writing. And sometimes it's fun and fast-paced, but it's very constructed. There's nothing necessarily wrong with constructed dialogue. Like I actually think that writing that makes the hand of the writer obvious can be really interesting if it's done with purpose, but that's clearly not what's happening here. And that I think is why it's so frustrating. It's like, there is this typical attempt at fairly realistic dialogue, I guess. And maybe that's why this sticks out so much is that it's so obviously not like, it's not, it's not even funny enough to sort of like carry you through the awkwardness of realizing that it is a written text. It's just weird. What Jack is actually doing is forcing Biddy to go through trauma kind of like against his will. Like if this were happening in a fanfic and it were happening with sex and not hockey, I would call it maybe like dubcon. It seems like Biddy doesn't actually know what's going to happen when Jack says, just go stand over by the boards and get ready. And Biddy's like, okay. And then he's like, what just happened? If you want to make the argument that Jack is being a good captain by forcing Biddy to stand up to his own fear and work through something, fine. And I'm not the kind of person who's like, all sex needs like enthusiastic consent. And you need to be like, give me a color yellow. Oh, okay. We'll slow down. I'm not the sort of person who advocates for like that level of consent. The thing that makes me so uncomfortable with this is that instead of just being like, surprise, Jack should have told him, listen, I think you've got this problem. I've been watching you play. I know I've been an asshole, but I think if we work on it, we can get you over it. What do you say? When would be a good time for you? But his approach is to just fucking roll up at Biddy's dorm room at four in the morning and be like, get your shit. And then he takes him to the fucking rink 
and starts slamming into him without asking. And he does it also like, as you said, without context, it's not a sort of like mutually decided upon course of events. It's also not a good teaching tactic. Like this is not how you get someone to learn something, especially physically. I'm like really baffled by this series of decisions. Although I do say, I think this is a fairly consistent character note until Jack's characterization disappears in like year four. I think that he like does do this sort of thing where he doesn't necessarily consult another person before doing something. Um, And I think that's interesting and worth examining, but I find it like curious that it's in this strip where he's being set up, you know, sort of playfully as the romantic lead. When he kisses Biddy at the end of year two, he just shows up and he doesn't ask. When he convinces Biddy to come out to the rest of the team toward the end of first semester, year three, he cer- he doesn't really get Biddy's consent. He just kind of randomly shows up. Biddy's like, what are you doing here? And then Jack is basically like, we're doing this. Interesting, isn't it? Because one of the only times that Jack finds himself in a position where he's sort of not in control in the comic is when another character shows up uninvited and is basically like, okay, time to get with the program. And that is considered like one of the worst things anybody in this comic does. So even at times, quote, abusive, end quote. I don't want to get into that now, but I just think it's really worth thinking about like how behaviors are coded depending on who's doing them and where those people are positioned in the story. You know how in certain games before you've like unlocked an object or unlocked a character, it's like just a black silhouette of the character of the object. I feel like that's how our podcast is treating the character who does that, where it's just like a silhouette with a cowlick and then a question mark. I also briefly want to just very briefly, I've talked about roller derby before. It's a contact sport. It's a contact sport, which most people don't grow up playing. So unlike hockey, you don't get a lot of people who like have been playing since they were four or whatever. And learning how to take a hit and hit people within the parameters of the game is actually like part of how you learn how to play roller derby. What I will say about roller derby is that it is a space, not all teams, but the team that I learned how to play on was a space primarily occupied by queer women and some other queer people elsewhere on the gender spectrum. So it was a really different space, right? And I think that, uh, and that space was like very, very, very concerned about people's comfort and learning slowly how to take a hit. Like there's all sorts of things you can do to improve your balance, to improve how you balance on a skate and improve like where you hit someone, what angles of the body are most effective for hitting, so on and so forth. It's not the same kind of hits as in hockey. Like checking is different than hits in roller derby because they're different sports that use hitting for different reasons. But I just thought like that was really interesting. When I first read the strip, I had not started playing roller derby yet. So I did not have that experience. And now that I have returned to this strip, it's like really telling. We've talked before about sort of like parameters of masculinity that go into hockey. And I think that this type of, for lack of a better word, like shitty pedagogy is in keeping and would not exist without that sort of like overarching framework. And so Biddy's inability 
unwillingness or like trauma that prevents him from being able to engage in this kind of bad teaching <laughs> tells us something about the, the world that produced that style of teaching. It tells us something about the world that Jack's grown up in, the kind of expectations that were placed on him and that he was able to meet or until he wasn't able to meet them and is now trying to make them happy again. And it's really interesting to me that he is recreating after he has gone through these like horrible experiences that we just learned about in The Hockey Prince, right? He's trying to reach out. He's trying to connect to Biddy, this fish out of water who's physically very different from other people on the team. But he's doing it in a way which is just recreating the system of sort of hockey identity, I guess, or I don't know how to say it, but I just think that that's like really interesting to consider now that I have been in a space where you like for a contact sport that is violence. That's how I broke my ankle. I was playing roller derby. There's a completely different way of learning how to engage with that violence than Jack exhibits here. And I think it has to do with the people in the space and the expectations of the space. And I don't know, there's something about it that really struck me. I have never played a contact sport. It's not something I can really weigh in on, except that my repeated feeling about this, especially in rereading it, is just, why is Biddy doing this? And I think at this point, we have talked about that question enough that we don't need to get into it again. And it's also like, even in asking that, it's not because I don't know the answer. It's because I think the question is important. Jack says, just trust me. What's interesting is that um, I think the next time he says, just trust me, Biddy gets checked and goes flying into the air and lands on his head and gets a fucking concussion. You can sort of see why following the patterns in this comic, I previously thought, oh, this is like a deconstruction. It's like a critique. It's basically saying like, this is bullshit. I think knowing what we know now about the comic and knowing that... The ending of Biddy's arc is figuring out how to embody what Jack is trying to teach him to withstand. I think maybe, I don't know, it's, you know, Jack's just trust me is saying like, just go through this pain and on the other side of it, you'll be a better person because you've endured pain. Enduring pain is part of life. Nobody can get around it. It's not something you can circumvent in the broader scheme of things, merely because like humans have different agendas and not all agendas are bad. So at a certain point, you have to just like endure the pain of living with people's choices and decisions and patterns that aren't yours. But that's completely different than like voluntarily subjecting yourself to physical and psychological and emotional torture for four years purely because of the idea that going through torture will ultimately make you stronger. Like, that is not a subversion of the system that makes a sport like hockey toxic. It's embracing that system and doubling down on it. Wow, that really put into perspective for me, I think, some of the frustrations I've about the way hockey and particularly professional hockey, gets portrayed when professional hockey enters this comic. Again, to spoil things, spoilers, guys. At the end of year three, Jack and his eventual NHL team win the Stanley Cup, and Jack outs himself. And when he's sitting at a press conference being asked about, you know, if he has anything he wants to say to, like, his queer audience, he says, 
don't be afraid. I don't know. I guess maybe that's that's part of this larger package of like, just trust me. It's like, why shouldn't you, like, why not be afraid? Like, first of all, isn't the problem that there's something to be afraid of? Like, why not like remove the thing that's causing fear rather than just being like, just ignore it. Don't be afraid. I think I thought that the narrative about LGBTQ, et cetera, identity that was like going to be thought about in this comic was going to be more complicated. I always figured there would be an element of sort of like coming out because of future strips that are coming up soon. But I think that I trusted in this deconstruction more than ultimately it gets played out. And, you know, I'll never know whether it was intended to be a deconstruction or not because I'm not friends with Ngozi. I'm not going to ask her. There's something about this just trust me, which is borrowing from both these ideas of like who a romantic lead is and who a sort of like sports lead is there's something going on here where we're being asked to trust jack not so much because he's proven himself in the narrative to be trustworthy and at the time i thought it wasn't actually asking us to trust jack i thought it was kind of asking us to like question why we would trust someone in this position but then ultimately jack proves himself trustworthy right like they get fucking married or whatever so another spoiler i'm really curious about the way that this moment is in conversation with romance patterns in narrative. And like, why is this the the comic where sort of shipping is mentioned in the blog? This comic, which is physically violent and which has Biddy cowering in fear in front of Jack, which by the way, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Jack's like a bad dude. I don't think Biddy's afraid of Jack. Like, I don't think it's an abusive relationship or whatever. And in fact, I see their power dynamic is quite opposite. Like, I think Biddy is a bit more whatever. Just trust me becomes this door opening into a new way of seeing the relationship between these characters in this moment of violence that I'm like having a really hard time articulating why that sticks out to me, but it does. There's something about it, which when I first read the comic, I was like, oh yeah, cool. Romance. Got it. Check. And now I'm questioning that reaction. After Jack hits Biddy and he's like, oh no. And then Biddy cowers against the boards and Jack stands in front of him where Jack is sort of like, his hands are up. He's like, trying not to be scary. I think he says, what? I'm not even wearing pads or I don't even have pads on. His ass is very beautifully highlighted by the sort of like dawn light coming through the Faber window. And in fact, there was an ask about this. Jaw popping said, I kind of got distracted by Jack's super fine ass in the last comic. Like, damn. And then a little comic she's drawn of herself where she's making like a sort of grimace face and saying, probably shouldn't make that a tag. And then of course it is a tag both in that extra and in the comic. And so there's a sexualization of his body in this moment of violence. And then as we keep going, we get this sort of like very dramatic framework where Biddy looks up at Jack and Jack is framed by the light of Faber. And then Jack sort of dramatically looks into the the non-existent camera as he says, until you stop being scared. And he's got these like bright blue eyes and this sort of very noirish dramatic lighting. And then in the final panel, we get the sort of punchline ish and and they're sort of back to being parallel. We don't get those dramatic angles. Of all the things that this comic teased people about and then never followed through on, it's Jack Zimmerman's ass. Don't give me a character whose ass has his own tag because canonically it's gigantic and then fail to deliver on the fetishization you have set up. The sort of mimetic thing that gets tossed around in the first couple years of the comic is, when will Jack kiss Biddy? 
when will Biddy get to touch Jack's butt? Jack kisses Biddy, and then Biddy never gets to touch Jack's butt. While I'm sure he's doing it off panel, it's just one of those things that was fun for a while, and all of a sudden it went away. We never talked about Jack Zimmerman's ass again. I wonder if it has to do with the comic kind of becoming more YA accessible as it became good representation and started winning awards and being carried in like children's bookshops. I don't know. There's that really, really weird shot in year four where Biddy is complaining about his like dad or whiskey or something. And then Jack just fucking takes his shirt off and there's a gratuitous shot of like just Jack's tits. Yes, it's possible that it's because it became more YA and began to sort of proliferate among audiences that wouldn't necessarily appreciate uh, fetishization of Jack Zimmerman's ass. It's also possible that he moved to a bottom separatist compound. We've really been we've really been fetishizing his ass. I feel like that was not respecting the the viability of the bottom separatist political agenda. Can that be an AU that Ransom and Hulser quantum leap into? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> they're, they're, they show up at a compound and there's like fucking Red Stockings magazine for bottoms, like <laughs> nailed all over the <laughs> the bulletin board outside the compound. I love it. That's great. All right. Well, uh, follow for more updates about about that. I've mentioned a couple times that I'll see every now and then posts on Tumblr that are like, check please is so funny. And then they'll have bullet points of the funny parts of check please. And one of the things that people say is funny about check please is when Jack says they're going to do this checking thing until you stop being afraid. And then they jump to the next panel and he just says, but actually there's a youth hockey tournament here. So I don't think that is very funny. I think it's something different. I think it's amusing. I think it's entertaining. It's not like a ha 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 ha, oh, LOL. It's just kind of like, I don't think this is necessarily bad. I think the diminishing pleasure of the occasional truly hilarious joke is something I would gladly trade for a consistently amusing and entertaining comedy in the dramatic arts sense of the term. Check Please is a rom-com. We've talked about it being a rom-com several times. I don't find any aspect of Check Please like laugh out loud funny. I have never laughed at Check Please. What I do think this is, is like a sort of beat of reversal at the end of the comic to kind of end it not on like a downer note where he's like, until you stop being afraid. And Biddy's like, okay. And he walks out crying, keeping it light. That's part of what comedy is. So I'm not saying it's not a comedy, but it's not funny. I don't think it's just here, but looking at this strip and thinking about, well, why don't I think this is that funny? Got me to put some of this into context. I think Ngozi, uh, as we discussed when we discussed Lucille Ball very briefly, I think she's interested in sitcom. She's interested in drama. She has a sense of sort of like placement and she has, I think, a good sense of beat. I think Ngozi's really good at the shape of humor. 
there's a building of tension and then a reversal, a puncture or something unexpected. I think she does that all the time. I think it's like a frequent part, especially of these early strips. I think that's very common. Personally, I have a taste that tends to lean into like absurdism or kind of like ridiculous slapstick or like very clever writing. And I don't think that Ngozi has actually committed to the rules of a world which allow that kind of exaggerated or very clever humor. I don't know that she's like necessarily interested in writing very clever humor. I wouldn't say that any of her characters strike me as particularly clever. They have many other wonderful qualities, but clever is not necessarily like the word I would use, except for maybe John Johnson, who I consistently think is funny, although I know that you're not I don't think you're the biggest fan, right? But I think John Johnson's funny. But I don't know that like rom-coms have to be funny. In fact, have I ever seen a rom-com that I thought was legitimately funny? I don't think that I have. I'm not sure that they exist. So I think that comedy is more about the puncturing of tension and the levity that you've mentioned, in part because this is like operating in a genre, which doesn't actually need to make you laugh out loud. It just needs to not make you depressed that Biddy's like getting beaten into the boards by his like future husband. Sitcom writing is famously formulaic. I Love Lucy is basically like how you make a sitcom on a conveyor belt. Every act in every episode follows a sort of formula. I do think it sort of fits with what we were saying earlier about Joss Whedon and the tone and tenor of his type of writing. There is something about meeting the expectations of your audience. When we were talking about, okay, Michelle Kwan, fine. Beyonce, fine. Why Lucille Ball? And then I said, rule of threes, basically. It's possible that either Ngozi out of the comic or Biddy in the comic was just looking for a third thing and just had to like come up with a third thing. The reason why it's important to come up with a third thing is because people expect there to be a third thing. That is basically how a lot of comedy writing works. And I feel like that's the genre that Check Please fits into most of the time. You expect that some turn like this will happen, so it does, even if it's not necessarily like funny or clever. I think you're really onto something when you're talking about meeting expectations. And I think maybe that has to do with the sort of turn that we keep talking about that happens during halfway through year three, where up until that point, I would say, check please to this really interesting balancing act where in moments like this, Jack says, trust me, and that sets him up as a romantic lead, potentially, right? You could make the argument that he's fulfilling a certain kind of role, but then Biddy gets a concussion when he says, trust me again. And yet we still want him to be the romantic lead, but it has this consequence. And I think there's something really interesting about that balance that then gets sort of disrupted. While we've been talking, I went back and I checked that strip from the end of year one. Jack tells Biddy to trust him and he gets a concussion. The words Jack actually uses are not trust me, it's I got your back. Same difference. So it's, yeah, it's expressing the same sentiment, but just for transparency, I checked and he, he doesn't use the phrase trust me. He says, I got your back. But I still think like, trust me, I got your back. Don't be afraid. Jack just speaks in platitudes. There was the potential to examine why this character speaks in platitudes, what that means about him. 
but because it never really follows through on asking the question of like, what is the emotional and psychological makeup of this character that leads him to basically just like fall back on cliches in moments where he knows that's what's expected of him. Would have been interesting to examine. Guess we'll just have to do it in fanfic because the comic didn't do it. But I like this strip. I think Jack is a creepy fuck. I think he is... The kind of person who, if I met him in real life and he did this shit to me, I would basically be like, stay the fuck away from me. You are so awful. Do not fucking come to my room at four in the morning, you piece of shit. But yeah, it's just kind of like, oh, whatever. And like, that's check, please. Biddy gets what he wants. That's what the comic's about. Biddy wants something and he gets it. So really, I guess he wanted this well unfortunately the comic is also about how if you get what you want you don't grow so that's true good works of art are complicated and they have a lot of contradictory overarching messages sounds right to me this is a masterpiece i know right uh it's part of the canon really um what's next what's next time on uh check this please oh man next time we are looking at hockey shit three nicknames Cool. I have no memory at all about this strip, so I'm excited to rediscover it. You know, I don't want to spoil it for you, but in hockey, there's these things called nicknames. What do you think your hockey nickname would be? You know what? Think about it. We'll talk about it next time when we talk about hockey shit three nicknames. I guess secret is already a nickname. I think of it as a handle, but it's a nickname. It's short for secret OMG. I've been secret OMG. Who are you? I'm Tomato. And you can find us at checkdispleased.tumblr.com on Podbean and on Spotify. And you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com where I'm writing fanfic philosophy these days. Yeah, and I'm on Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, and also familiar on AO3. And um, yeah, we've, we've been Secret and Tomato talking about Check, Please, and we'll see you back here next time when we hit hockey shit number three on nicknames bye bye if you like absurdist comedy might i recommend the emmy award-winning primetime comedy south park